0: Just a little over a year ago, the Department of Health published a set of statistics about the state of the nation's health.
1: Key Health Trends 2019
0: The headline, as far as the department was concerned, was that we were living longer
1: than ever. We are continuing to live longer. Over the past decade, we have added, on average... Three months per year to our life expectancy.
0: They had done the same exercise the year before, highlighting the same annual increase in life expectancy in the 10 years since the recession and the austerity budgets that had slashed spending on health.
1: We are living longer than our European counterparts. Male life expectancy in Ireland has been above the EU average.
0: It was all true. I checked out the numbers with the Central Statistics Office. By this measure, any reasonable person might infer that whatever impact austerity had on the health system, there had not been a knock-on effect on our long-term
1: health. Increase in life expectancy is due to significant reductions in major causes of death, such as circulatory system diseases and cancer.
0: But what if you zoom out from the last 10 years? What if you look at the years before the recession? That is a very different story. Life expectancy was improving a lot more before the crash. Yes, it has increased by three months every year since the recession, but life expectancy was improving by five months every year before the recession. In other words, That steady progress towards longer, healthier lives took a thumping from 2008 onwards. We were losing two months of increased life expectancy a year, every year. And that added up to 18 months since we went bankrupt and the Troika took over. So it's not unreasonable to ask then, did the recession shorten our lives by a year and a half? That is a proper blues song. A real 12-bar, bottom-of-your-soul plea to someone to recognise your suffering. But is it the right song? We are trying to get a fix on what happened 10 years ago so that we can fix the crisis that is about to happen asking how much of what was imposed on the health system needed to happen to a clunky, flat-footed service crying out for reform and how much of what happened imposed suffering that should never have been asked of those already in pain. Did austerity cure or nearly kill our health service? And if we weren't living as long as we might have expected, what had happened to our quality of life while we were still alive? Let's park the issue of how long we live for a bit and start with our sex lives. Yep, there are going to be some adult words, so listener discretion is advised. And here is why. Because we bailed out the banks and because that demanded cuts in our health budget... Tens of thousands of Irish women have either miserable or
2: non-existent sex lives. It's painful to have intercourse. It's painful and they avoid it as a result of that.
0: What's that got to do with the banks and the whole country going bankrupt, you ask? In the experience of family doctor Kevin Kelly, you can draw a straight line from bailing out the banks to the end of some people's sex lives.
2: Yes, I, I could probably draw that line.
0: You see, back in Ireland BC, before crash, there was a better level of support on the medical card for women's sexual and reproductive health provided by GPs and paid for by the state.
2: It was in the late 90s and early 2000s. We had support from the government to provide family planning type clinics. So we provided the contraceptive pill, we provided advice regarding um, intrauterine devices uh, which were marina Kyle's or implantons or the barren arm as it 's known, but we also dealt with and uh, menopause. women spend one third of their lives in a menopause state, and it causes huge issues for women, including incontinence and neurogenital. Problems. This state
0: support helped to deal with what Kevin calls a silent epidemic of conditions related to the menopause, like vaginal dryness leading to extremely painful sex or incontinence after childbirth. The kind of conditions that many will not feel entirely dignified discussing in public, let alone demanding that the state provide for them.
2: We had an opportunity to do other things with that money. And we lost that opportunity. So we could have done many other things. We could have actually built a quaternary hospital in the country somewhere that we wouldn't be in the scenario we're in. But we made a decision to bail out the banks. And one of the consequences of that was they removed access to women for a service that they had.
0: These cuts were introduced way ahead of many others. Hospital staff numbers, bed closures, dental services, carers' allowances and all were all shredded, yes, but down the line. Supports for women's sexual and reproductive health were among the first things to go. In fact, they went three weeks before we guaranteed the banks.
2: I'm not sure that service would have been removed if it were for men. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it just happened to slip by very easily and it was an easy option Of course, the 12 men and three women of
0: Brian Cowan's government did not consciously impose painful sex lives on women. It's not like the cabinet sat down and debated either or economic stability over good sexual and reproductive health. But that has been the net effect. Thousands of women now lead painful or non-existent sex lives. Thousands of marriages and relationships have been hollowed out or fractured. Thousands of women still silently suffer daily indignity and discomfort because we had to bail out banks instead of take care of them. It's really important that we don't end up overstating this, Kevin so in your direct experience, how many women do you think are walking around suffering these conditions?
2: well, one third of women currently walking around are in the menopause era of their life, and of that probably ten to twenty percent are suffering from um, urogenital discomfort due to uh, Eastern deficiencies, but probably thirty to forty percent have some degree of stress incontinence associated with childbirth, which can be treated a lot better, but it's completely ignored, completely forgotten about. And the sad thing was it was on the table. It was part of the agenda of healthcare back in the 2000s. But with austerity, it was completely removed.
0: And how many women coming to you who need these treatments then wouldn't be able to afford them?
2: Oh, like 40% of the population have medical cards, so I haven't extrapolated it down, but none of those patients have free access to hormone replacement therapy, uh, ring pessaries for treatments of incontinence. This is necessarily
0: a bit back of an envelope because there aren't any official figures, but a third of the female population is 830,000 women. 330,000 of them on medical cards. Taking even the most conservative of Kevin's figures, that's 33,000 people who may need oestrogen to relieve vaginal discomfort but can't get it. And nearly 100,000 who may need treatment for incontinence but can't get it.
2: Some GPs still do it and provide it for free. It would take a huge investment into healthcare to get this back up and to the level it should have been at now.
0: Long story short then, Kevin, we are talking about tens of thousands of women suffering with these conditions, but presumably not saying too much about it because it's not exactly the most dignified thing in the world saying sex is really painful
3: for me.
2: Absolutely. You have you have clarified it much better than I am capable of doing.
3: It doesn't surprise me at all that women's sexual health services are poorly resourced They've always been poorly resourced, Philip, and a really sort of cursory look at the history of the Irish health system will show you that our health care has been dominated by an extremely conservative state and the Catholic Church.
0: Sarah Burke is the best person that I know to provide us with a roadmap of the health service's black spots. After the crash, she provided radio listeners with weekly updates on the impact of the new austerity on our collective
3: health. Sarah Burke has exposed the impact of underfunding on people who rely on these services. What I was really interested in, Mary, is whether the inequalities in access to hospital care, if that exists in the mental health services. so first,
0: Perhaps because journalism will only get you so far in your understanding of an issue... Since the austerity cuts period, she went into academia, where she is still pondering the same questions.
3: The Irish health system is survival of the fittest. Even if you've money, even if you're educated, even if you know people, even if you've private health insurance, it's really hard to navigate it. And it's often the people who need it most who get that least care. And that's, that's true all over the world, but it's particularly true in an Irish context where people can't access care Or if they can, they need money in their pocket that they don't necessarily have.
0: And in Sarah's analysis, if you don't have money in your pocket, there are pockets of the health service that are close to accident black spots.
3: Austerity measures virtually obliterated publicly-funded dental health care. For the last 10 years, dentists, publicly-funded dentists, were incentivised to pull teeth rather than to fix teeth or make oral health better.
1: They say of 200 children a week are being admitted to hospital to have teeth removed and waiting times for young children.
3: Mental health, there was a big plan published just before the bust. Its funding was based on selling off the lands of psychiatric hospitals. The property bust meant they weren't funded and didn't happen.
4: That the 35 million announced yesterday for mental health services includes 20 million promised for this year.
3: Thing we haven't resourced pretty much all chronic diseases. So it's not just mental health as a chronic disease, but asthma, diabetes, COPD are hugely underfunded. And also they're overly hospital focused. So you, ne- you have to go to hospital to get that care any of those neurodegenerative diseases where people just don't get the care they need once they're outside of that hospital setting.
1: Dementia, the forgotten crisis. Without additional funding, we will not be in a position to reopen all of our day services that people with dementia and their families so desperately need.
0: Increased prescription charges, increased inpatient charges, decreased medicine subsidy and increased emergency department charges meant that we were paying a half a billion a year into the system on top of our taxes.
3: We significantly transferred costs uh, from the state onto people's pockets. So prior to austerity budgets... Medical card holders, so the poorest third of the population didn't have to pay out of pocket. With the cuts, they had to pay up to €25 euro a month for essential medicines. So that's a huge amount of money out of uh, people who don't have much in their pocket. And those who don't have medical, do, didn't have medical cards, had to pay up to €144 euros a month for essential medicines. And that in a European context is Uh, off the Richter scale. Very few citizens in other countries have to pay that much out of their pocket for drugs. So not only were services cut, but people had to pay more for them, way more than they were ever going to have to pay for water. And yet what we heard the noise about was the water charges, not the increased charges for essential medical care.
0: These are the areas where patients and families have good reason to still feel aggrieved. Cuts that provably hit the poorer hardest and made them even poorer. Cuts that traumatised entire families trying to access vital care or treatment for a loved one. An already lumbering, inefficient service became inaccessible to some and cruel to others. On the other side of the weighing scales, though, there are positives which also have to be considered. The Troika spotted a few good opportunities for reform in the middle of the crisis. So what did the Troika ever do for us? Well, while there might not have been straighter roads and aqueducts, there was quicker day case treatments and there was e-prescriptions and cheaper drugs.
3: So, for example, when the Troika came to Ireland, they there was very little, if any, of health in the memorandums, the agreements with the government. But quite quickly from being here, they began to highlight the high cost the Irish paid for drugs, both publicly and privately, and they pushed... Uh, what was called reference pricing, which was one of a series of measures to bring down the price of drugs for both the state and private citizens. They also stimulated some of the e-health reforms that were actually only beginning to really benefit from now during the pandemic. I remember sitting at a Troika briefing with the European head of mission, the European Commission's head of mission to Ireland. And he was also responsible for Romania at the time, going, even in Romania, they have e-prescribing. Even in Romania, they have electronic patient records. So real horror at how far we were as a health system behind. So it wasn't all
0: slash and burn. And all the indices are moving in the right direction, as they probably say in departmental steering groups. Staff numbers, hospital beds, patient outcomes, all returning to pre-crash levels. But numbers and reforms don't capture the humanity of what happened and the trauma that still exists.
4: She loves people. She actually is a real people person. She loves to see people coming in. She loves people to talk to her. Even though she might not be able to talk to them a whole lot, she'll she'll tell them about uh, Beauty and the Beast or Postman Pat. She'll go Beast Pat and she'll she'll, um, talk to them that way.
0: What age is Roisin, Ursula?
4: She's 28.
0: And what level do her doctors say that she's functioning at?
4: She functions about a one-year-old.
0: Ursula Bergen's daughter, Roisin, has Dravitz syndrome, a rare and very severe form of epilepsy. Before the crash, she was getting home help in the form of a carer who Ursula could leave Roisin with for a few hours twice a week. Then, eight years ago, one of the last austerity budgets cut a half a million hours' home care and the Bergen's already tiny world shrank a bit more.
4: You're depending on maybe having someone in the family come for an hour or two so we can go shopping. That's about it. And, like, everybody's got their own lives to lead so you can't be all the time asking them to do stuff for you.
0: Looking after Roisin's needs while her husband goes to work means that Ursula has been living what is effectively a level 5 lockdown type existence for over 8 years now. Ursula is upbeat about her a lot but you can hear the strain in her voice.
4: I don't want to be kind of doing the poor mouth or anyone feeling tired for me. I mean, we're very lucky. We have Roisin with us all the time. We know she's safe. Um, and we know no one can hurt her or harm her in any way. And that's... That's all, like, I mean, that's all anyone wants is to know their child is happy and safe, and
0: she is. And Ursula, am I right in thinking that when these cuts were introduced... You wouldn't really have had the time or the headspace to think about taking your protest against the cuts to the doll.
4: Oh no, it's it's not. It's not an option. I don't think it's an option for anyone who's caring for someone at home because with us if if we were to go to the doll it would mean carton roaching up with us and that wouldn't really be fair. And I, I think that's that's half the problem because carers can't make their voice heard. Roisin has no vote, so she has no voice, and most carers are gagged because they can't shout, they can't go out and protest.
0: happened to Roisin came as a direct result of an intervention by the Troika and the inability of carers to protest against it. Halfway through 2012, the Troika became aware that the HSE was going to run a half a billion euros over its budget. There was a scramble then to identify 135 million euro of so-called cost containment measures. First there was an attempt to cut disability services, but they were successfully resisted with protests outside the doll. Then home care packages were cut instead, denying help to a group who were unable to mount as public a protest.
4: It makes me blood boil even now when you see certain money's been spent so ridiculously and yes, like they say that the hours that they have been replaced by but they haven't because there's been more people needing those hours, needing the services.
0: And then there was the nappies. Roisin is incontinent and needs adult-sized pull-up nappies. Someone somewhere in the system decided that a few pennies might be saved if nappies were rationed.
4: We were told that they were too expensive we couldn't be using those anymore so we had to count how many nappies she'd use over a month and submit that and then we get the supply of nappies
0: and what would happen if you guessed wrong or if Roisin got a tummy bug one month
4: well you were in trouble <laughs> you know you had to go and and buy nappies or whatever in Clampton's where we could get
0: And could you afford that?
4: Yeah, but I mean, it's tough, like, because every every little extra penny spent, it takes away from something else.
0: So did you literally have to count up the number of nappies that you were going to use in a day rather than just saying, oh, it's about four or five boxes a month?
4: Yeah, because we had to give a number to the health service so they could send us a monthly supply.
0: A system that denies people a handful of emergency nappies or targets them for cuts because they are the least likely to protest is a system that has lost its humanity and it has failed its rochines. Ursula feels that she is now gradually losing her daughter.
4: She's regressed. That's the best way to say it. She's regressed. She is quieter. She used to sort of sing little rhymes. She danced with us. She'd hit a ball with a hurl. Now she's sitting in a chair most of the day. She watches her videos and she plays little pegboards. She takes the pieces in and out. That's her life now.
0: Does that feel like Roisin is kind of slipping away from you?
4: The whole family have spoken about it and said, like it's like we're losing Roisin by tiny little bits. Her neurologist has tried every medication under the sun and he's trying a new one again at the moment. Um I I mean we're not looking for if we could just get Roshin back that she could be the happy little lady that she always was. That's all we want. Like, I mean, she was used to going out a lot more. And as I said, she'd go to this lady and she had a family of grown-up children who all kind of took an interest in Roisin. She doesn't see them at all at the moment.
3: Home care is a really good example of where the HSE cut where they could rather than where they should. It was easy to cut home care because the home carers weren't fully employed HSE staff who they had to let go so they were either employed on a a casual basis or through private firms so it was easier for them to do.
0: Easier to do in the short term says Sarah Burke but also short-sighted as a cost-saving
3: measure. They cost millions of hours out of home help, which meant that many people ended up either being a hospital admission or a nursing home resident when they could have stayed in their own home if they'd been given that care.
0: What's your diagnosis of the HSE as a patient? Is it sick but healthy underneath or not getting better as quickly as we had hoped?
3: Ooh, I, I, I'd say the HSE was a pretty sick patient to start with, not getting the right type of care. And actually, it proved pretty resilient through c- the crisis, but it was it was cut to the bone. So there's
0: just one outstanding question left then. Did the recession shorten our lives? Was the Department of Health being partial with the truth last year when it said that we're all living two and a half years longer on average since the crash?
1: We are continuing to live longer. Over the past decade, we have added, on average, three months per
0: year. Well, something that happened between 2008 and 2010 did shorten Irish life expectancy. Or rather, it caused a decline in the rate at which it had been increasing since before the recession.
3: So life expectancy has continued to increase over the last two decades. But what we're seeing since 2010 is a slowing in the increase in life expectancy, or indeed a halving in the increase of life expectancy in Ireland.
0: So in other words, we have every good reason to expect that we should have been living two years longer if it wasn't for something that happened 10 years ago?
3: Absolutely. That is completely true.
0: Sarah Burke, Assistant Professor in Trinity's Health Policy Centre, to give her her proper title. Two years of our lives. That's a pretty hefty price tag. We'll keep on trying to find a reason to change the record to see if there is something else more appropriate as our song of ages. We have another four programmes to do it in. But I'm guessing you probably haven't heard much today to convince you that we shouldn't keep on playing the blues for the moment. Boom Broke is produced and presented by Philip Boucher Hayes at home in his living room, which I hope explains the occasionally less than optimum sound quality. Thanks for listening and stay safe.